It is cooler today, but temperatures have been soaring over the past 10 days or so, so there's no doubt many of you have been feeling it. We've spent a lot of time talking about the issue on this show over the, over the last couple of weeks. Now, recently, delegates to the Lower Mainland Local Governments Association voted against a motion that would have made landlords responsible for providing cooling systems to tenants just as they're responsible for providing heat. Now, the motion was defeated in a close vote, but it was a stark reminder of how staying cool in spring and summer is increasingly part of a broader conversation when it comes to climate change. Now, on Friday's show, we were joined by New Westminster School trustee Daniel Connolly, uh, who discussed New Westminster Secondary School, a relatively new school that it was that was constructed uh, in 2020. Now, it does not have an air conditioning system. Just think about that for a second. A school, a brand new school built in 2020, doesn't have an air conditioning system. And we were told by Ms. Connolly, many students and staff certainly uh, were feeling it on those hot days. Here is a New Westminster School trustee, Daniel Connolly talking to us about the challenges before uh, school boards and uh, many educators as well, because schools in many cases do not have a cooling system. This also leads to the you know a conversation around the funding cycle. You know when it's approved to when shovels are in the ground, that type of thing. A lot has changed, uh, including you know as you mentioned earlier, the the shift in in these types of uh, weather patterns and temperatures and. And these spikes that we're seeing, you know, I mean, heat in the school in the summers and later June is never, and that's always been consistent, but it just seems to be how early it's happening and how much longer it seems to be happening for. And and it's something I think that we need to be working across all levels of government uh, to, to adapt to that and manage it. That was Danielle Colony, a new Westminster School Board trustee. Earlier today, Jatinder Beer, president of the Surrey Teachers Association, spoke to our Jill Bennett about a similar issue, in this case, heat in portables. Take a listen. We understand that our portables, some of them are, are quite old, and so the um, air uh, quality is not super great in there. And so when the heat starts to um, hit those portables, there are small windows, doors, and uh, it gets really, really hot and stuffy in those portables. And we understand from hearing from our members that um, when it gets really hot like that, um, teachers are not feeling well, and nor are the students' learning conditions really optimal for learning. Uh, that was Jatinder Beer, president of the Surrey Teachers Association, uh, speaking to our Jill Bennett earlier today. Now, keep in mind, uh, Surrey has a huge challenge with uh, portables. There's uh, almost 400 portables uh, in that school district. In fact, they said that it should hit 400 uh, in and around September of this next school year. Joining me now to talk a little bit about schools is Veronica Collins. She's a parent of students from Crosstown Elementary School in Vancouver. Veronica, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I wanted to put a bit of context to our conversation uh, within the school uh, that obviously your uh, kids go to and what's happening in other schools as well. Walk me through what you've heard from uh, students and educators at Crosstown Elementary. Yeah, thank you. Heat's been an issue at our school for the last couple of years. I think we all became very aware of heat in Vancouver like two years ago when the heat dome and other heat waves hit. At that time, they had to close the school for several days, and I believe a teacher even passed out in the classroom. Uh, So there have been concerns for some time. And last summer, I worked with staff from VSOC, uh, which is a child care organization in Vancouver, to try to address uh, the heat in the common areas where they were providing summer care. 
the temperature was regularly 28 degrees, uh, obviously very difficult to stay calm and take care of children and difficult for the children to have any energy in those conditions. And of course, we all know that it was quite unseasonably warm last week. uh, And we became concerned when we dropped off our son on Monday for kindergarten at nine in the morning and the thermostat in his classroom already read 29.4 degrees Celsius before it was even full of students. So Uh, my attention has been on this issue this week. (laughs) How old is uh, Crossdown Elementary School? I don't know exactly how old. I should look that up. It is a relatively new school. I've heard anywhere from eight to five years old. Uh, It's not a very old school. Uh, And uh, when you spoke to your son, uh, how did he feel at the end of the day or, you know, during school learning and, 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 you know, kindergarten's a different stage compared to grade five or six, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm just wondering, how did he describe the day to you? It's interesting. I also have a daughter at Crosstown Elementary who is in grade three. And I noticed that the older the children get, the more articulate they are, the more self-aware they are. She Mm -hmm. immediately was saying, I am way too hot in class. My teacher's saying it's over 30 degrees. Uh, She's taking us out to the rooftop garden and giving us an optional spray down with the hose if we want it. I feel dizzy. I feel faint. Um, Sebastian, my younger one who's in kindergarten, it took me asking him, how do you feel at school right now? It's quite warm. And he immediately said, I've had a lot of headaches. I'm very tired, and some of my friends have said they don't feel well. So, yeah. And, and, and has there been any discussion at the school that you know of or any other school in Vancouver School District and maybe talking to other parents that are teachers able to bring in any cooling system for their respective classrooms? You know, last summer working with VSOC to try to address the issues, I know they did bring in an air conditioning unit at one point, and they were told that they had to remove it because – They're not allowed on the first floor to open doors or windows. It's a security issue in our neighborhood. So they were venting it into an empty school, uh, and that was not allowed. Obviously, very difficult. They bring in fans when they can. Mm -hmm. Teachers are resorting to very creative means. One teacher took um, their students to the beach for a full day. I know two classes that went to Costco when their uh, classrooms went over 30 degrees just to get in some AC and teachers have been using their own money to buy multiple rounds of popsicles, which I'm very grateful for. Some teachers have put uh, spray bottles with ice water into the classroom mm-hmm. and the, the students are spraying themselves with those. So fans are, I have seen a few fans, but fans actually don't keep people safe in overheating uh, situations. They make us feel better psychologically, but they're not a good safety precaution. Uh, now, my understanding is Crosstown Elementary opened in March of 2017. I think at that time it had about 80 students, and I know uh, the downtown population has grown significantly since then. Uh, is Have you had any conversation with the school district uh, in regards to what sort of the peak temperature is in regards to what's optimal for students to to learn and teachers to teach? I mean, when you start hitting 29, 30, 31, it can get uncomfortable pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't had any discussion with the district. I did reach out on Tuesday of last week and wrote an email to our trustee, Victoria Jung. Mm -hmm. I have not heard back. Um, Multiple other parents have written as well. This is an issue for so many families. I know that I've heard of two families where the children actually became ill. Um, So we haven't heard anything back, but we don't know that information. 
Um, however, there are a lot of students in this four-story school. There's about 400 students now, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, like, we took photographs of thermostats. We would go in uh, around lunch hour when the classrooms were empty. And even with the classrooms empty and the windows open, we took 23 readings over five days last week. And the average temperature was 29.3. So we're talking about days where the temperature outside was, you know, low to mid-20s. Inside the classrooms, it was easily six degrees hotter or worse. So we're not even talking heat wave temperatures. It's just it's stifling with normal spring temperatures. Do you, what are your thoughts? Because I talked to uh, school trustee Connolly, Danielle Connolly from New Westminster about this on Friday. Your thoughts on, you know, it's hard enough uh, to get any new school built and I, because our population grows in certain areas, other areas it doesn't. But at the end of the day, we still have a growing student population, which means schools need to be built. I, I'm just shocked that there isn't anything within our planning process that says we must have some sort of cooling system built into these schools now. Uh, I, I'm going to assume that will be one of the things you'll be articulating as well moving forward, that all any any plan from any school district, especially in Metro Vancouver, uh, include some sort of uh, uh, budgeting for a cooling system. Absolutely. I mean, I have heard that there are, you know, there are things in place to ensure that new buildings in Vancouver will have air conditioning. I think it's become a bit of a social justice issue as well, because it's often the elderly um, or the vulnerable or young children who are impacted most by this and can have health issues. Um, So I think definitely going forward, we need to have air conditioning budgeted into our schools. I'm very reluctant to do anything that would, you know, endanger in any way more schools in Vancouver. As a parent of young children, I know how challenging it is to get into kindergarten classes or to get childcare. So in no way do I want to see um, fewer schools or childcare centers. However, you know, Vancouver Coastal Health put out some guidelines. Uh, they were, you know, optional. I believe it was last year and for childcare environments. And they said, Temperatures should not rise above 26 degrees, and if they do, you need to have a cooling center within the building. That kind of seems like common sense, and I feel like not only do we need a plan going forward for you know, mandatory, mandatory AC in these buildings, we also need to get creative. I know it's costly, I know it's complex, but we have so many schools across Vancouver and the Lower Mainland that have no cooling systems. I know my sister's boys in Chilliwack were in a school with no cooling system, and it was 29 degrees there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need to somehow retrofit these schools with some creative solutions, and we need both, I think, a short-term and a long-term solution. We can't just keep sending our children into these classrooms. I know parents are feeling guilty about dropping the kids off at a building that's already almost 30 degrees at 9 in the morning. Yeah, I think you raise a very good point. Uh, you know, one could argue, look, school is out during the peak summer months when the real heat is is there. Uh, that's so that so be it. But it's obviously from what we're seeing now is that warmer periods are starting earlier and they're much more intense as well. And, and that's ultimately the issue. I mean, we're already talking about this, having this conversation about uh, residences in regards to heat pumps now where you can cool it and heat with the technology of today. And we've done a segment on that just recently as well. Uh, but to think that uh, we shouldn't be looking at our schools uh, is really quite shocking. I never thought I'd be doing a segment uh, with you today, Veronica, on the issue of <laughs> schools and air conditioning. And I'm sure as a parent, you never thought you'd be working or trying to work with the school district and trying to address this issue. That's for sure. 
Absolutely. And I've been surprised how many parents I've brought the issue to who have said, oh, no, there's definitely air conditioning in my school. And then they get back to me the next day and say, no, you're right, there's not. And I think one of the things is, as parents, we can be advocates, not just for the kids, but also for the teachers and the staff who aren't able to speak up uh, in the same way that I can. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Jazz, but I can't imagine being with 20 children of varying needs uh, and temperaments all day. And then to have to do that in a classroom that regularly, my daughter said her classroom is regularly going up to 32 degrees. I think it would be hard to be the best version of yourself. And our, our teachers really um, at Crosstown, they do an incredible job. They deserve our support. It's an unsafe working environment. Somewhere along the way, kids stop learning uh, when the heat gets to a point where it is unbearable or it impacts them. It, it, that's the fundamental reality. There's no use sending them to school if they're not going to learn. So if you, you want them to learn, you got to make sure the environment's there as well. And, and uh, the cooling of, of a school is so vitally important. Veronica, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your com- the conversation with you. Thanks so much for speaking with me. I enjoyed it. Now, you may remember the uh, Stanley Park bike lane. The temporary bike lane was set up in 2020 during the uh, pandemic uh, when cars were banned from driving uh, on park roads. And the Vancouver Park voted to remove the temporary bike lane along Stanley Park Drive back in February, say they're going to reassess and hopefully would build a new bike lane. Uh, But the temporary lane, which did shut off uh, one lane uh, along Stanley Park Drive, uh, well, it's uh, coming down. And on the weekend, protesters came out to share their uh, frustration and anger over the board's decision. Uh, As they say, the process to um, remove that bike lane uh, began this weekend. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Lisa Slakov. She is a park board liaison with Hub Cycling. Lisa, thank you for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Jess. So walk me through uh, the conversation this weekend. I understand uh, protesters came out uh, yesterday uh, to share their dismay over the board's uh, park board's decision in regards to the bike lane. Um, walk me through sort of what's, uh, what's been occurring over the last 48 hours or so. Yeah, we... Um I'm with Hub Cycling. I'm the park board liaison, and we have been following um, the decision that was announced almost immediately after um, our municipal government changed last October um, to remove the bike lane in Stanley Park. We were in a state of shock then, and we still remain completely shocked with that decision. Since that time, there have been and a lot there's been a lot of talk a lot of um motions at the park board and decisions about removing the lane um but it's actually taken a meeting in mid february to finalize that decision to get staff out there figuring out how they're going to remove the lane to the tune of about 330 uh sorry yeah $330,000 And uh, that lane removal finally got started um, Friday night. So uh, a number of people who actually were still hoping that somehow the lane might be kept in just gathered and uh, Hub Cycling was there as well to express our deep dismay over the removal of the bike lane. Uh, What is wrong with removing the lane, if that's what the uh, present uh, party, the ABC coalition, said they would do, number one, and number two, it's not like there isn't going to be a lane there. Uh, is this a question of 
these protesters and, and, and individuals who don't want to wait, or is it a question of it's the wrong direction in their mind to go? Uh, I think there's a lot of different responses um, there, Jazz, but basically, just at a really fundamental level, there not only was there a lot of talk about removing the lane or possibly keeping the lane or, you know, just a lot of confusion um, at those park board meetings and in the communications, um, but we also simply don't understand the talk about putting in um, a permanent bike lane. Uh, why would you remove something at $330,000? Uh, we're still ma- waiting for a mobility study for Stanley Park because right now mobility doesn't work well in Stanley Park. Um, and it's certainly not the, the bike lane, in my opinion, that's causing a lot of the problems. So this mobility study um, was launched as part of the, the greater planning process for Stanley Park um, a couple years ago. It was supposed to come to Park Board Commissioners for a vote um, early this year. Um, everything was ready. A lot of money had been spent on the mobility study. A lot of work had been done, tons of consultation and research um, and th- this study has completely disappeared so we actually expected that the lane would be left in place um, while we found out um, the results of the mobility study now one of the first things that the new park board did was to decide they were going to quote unquote reframe and repurpose the mobility study um, and we still haven't heard what that means but there have been mobility issues um, in Stanley Park. There's no, there's no public transit except to get right into the very entrance of the park. There used to be transit all around the park dropping people off. Um, you know, there's the people talk about the seawall as being a great access route for people who want to bike. But if anybody's been out on that seawall in the summer, it's actually getting really dangerous because there's so many people walking and biking. People are falling off that little lip from the cyclist um, path onto the pedestrian path. There's just so many people. Um, We really need more alternative transportation um, ways in the park. Uh, What do you say to those that, look, you know, you took out a lane for these cyclists, uh, which impacted the ability of motor vehicles, uh, in some cases tour buses, in many cases for seniors to enjoy the park as well. Like I, I, I understand where you're coming from in regards to wanting to improve the cycling infrastructure in Stanley Park, but some have said that you know the the bicycle lane there also impacted uh, senior citizens' ability to get in, motor vehicles to get in it was more difficult that perhaps we do need to be focused on building a permanent bicycle lane, but at this time we shouldn't be taking out a lane uh, in regards to uh, for, motor, for motor vehicles because it does impact the ability for many others to, to enjoy the park. Yeah, the question of equity and accessibility in terms of getting into the park I think is a big one, and I think that there has been a lot of um, about difficulties in accessing the park because of the bike lane. And, you know, I, I know that staff worked extremely hard ever since that bike lane was put in initially as a reaction to 
separating people walking and cycling um, in 2020 with COVID. Um, and then they discovered just how amazingly popular it was. So staff works really hard. There was a lot of talk about um, great parking reduction and so on, but um, staff worked to the point where there really wasn't a parking reduction, um, where they really did put in a lot of places for people with mobility issues, um, able to get into sites and so on. And what the, what the mobility study, which was reported on last July, showed is that, for example, people have been complaining a lot about getting out of the park um, onto the, the sort of causeway route heading into, onto Georgia, um, blaming that on the bike lane. But the mobility study was showing that there have been problems with getting out of the park in a motor vehicle on that route for decades, it's not it, it's not a new problem. So once again, equity and accessibility means to me not just a you know a private automobile that only certain people can afford and use, but a lot of seniors can't use a private automobile. A lot of seniors require other ways to get into the park. So I'd love to see shuttles and transit and biking. Um, you know, I, I know somebody who uses a hand cycle, which is, um, you know, he's mobility impaired and, and it's a low to the ground um, mode of transport. He can't use it on the seawall. It's too difficult to get around with all the people and other um, people biking and, and the bars across the path at various points. So he's been loving the Stanley Park bike lane. Finally, he can bike there and feel safe. So I, I think the question of equity and accessibility needs to be explored much more deeply. I'm speaking to Lisa Slackoff. She's the Park Board Liaison for Hub Cycling. We're talking about uh, the cycling lane uh, in Stanley Park. Uh, Lisa, if, as the Park Board said, this is going to move forward uh, and they are going to work towards uh, uh, you know, some sort of plan for a permanent bike lane, what happens in that time that uh, cyclists are waiting? Is it just a case of drive along the side of the, the the main road going in through Stanley Park? Is that where uh, cyclists will be going? Uh, you know, there was a long period of time where obviously that road was mainly just accessible to people with motor vehicles and the, you know, and, and the brave cyclists is what I'll call them. Um, so I would say that the, the majority of people biking are going to be taking the seawall. And again, <laughs> if anybody goes out on a busy, um, nice day, you'll realize that it's no longer safe a lot of the time on that narrow seawall at certain points. Um, so that's just going to really add a huge crush of people who've realized how wonderful it is to access the park by bike. Um, the other issue on the seawall that we need to raise is that especially now with greater storm action um, and climate um, change and so on, the, the seawall is, is quite frequently closed. And at that point, it becomes a real challenge for people walking and cycling to enjoy Stanley Park period. Um, I think what you're going to find is that those same relatively brave cyclists will be going along the road, um, but all of those other family, um, people on hand cycles, 
um, people using a lot of different mobility issues who've been do, using that lane are going to be looking to the uh, the overcrowded seawall. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be, of course, somewhere along the way, a happy medium has to be found, found in regards to those who cycle uh, and those who are still reliant on, on motor vehicles. Um, what do you say to the argument that, look, uh, this present government, municipal government that's been elected, the ABC Council uh, and Park Board, you know, clearly were elected by this silent majority that say, look, we have to go in a different direction. I don't think anybody's against providing cycling in Stanley Park. Uh, but this is the direction we're going to go in for now. Do you think there is a point where you can actually find a happy medium in this city in regards to this ongoing conversation and debate, and sometimes very polarized and very loud debate of uh, cyclists versus motorists? Because I don't think it's black and white, but I do believe there is still a, a significant amount of of uh, debate and conversation in this issue, that it's it, th- there isn't a clear solution and an easy solution either way. Yeah, there's definitely um, a, a lot of debate. I, I do think um, that the that cities all over the world and parks all over the world are moving and actually fairly rapidly um, toward a lower car approach for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, climate change is a huge issue. And here in Vancouver, we've declared a climate um, emergency and our transportation emissions are one of the top two, um, you know, polluters so or, or creators of emission here in Vancouver. So, you know, we actually have a huge obligation to look at ways of lowering our emissions on top of the fact that places all over the world are recognizing the, the, the livability, the greater safety of moving away from um, private motor vehicles. So we're not talking about eliminating um, motor vehicles. We're simply talking about finding alternatives. And, you know, in terms of the popularity and the way the vote went, um, with, with respect to this specific um, lane in Stanley Park, a poll just last year that was reported on in business in Vancouver showed that 63% of Vancouverites liked the Stanley Park lane. So I, that's, again, another reason why, you know, we were so stunned by the decision to remove it at, at quite a huge cost. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time today, Lisa, and I look forward to having you on again because this is an ongoing issue, Stanley Park being one of them, the broader conversation along the Broadway corridor as well, Uh, and it is not an issue that's going to go away, and and we do have to find some sort of common ground uh, on this issue for sure. Thank you so much for your time uh, uh, this Monday. It was really my pleasure, and thank you so much for having um, me from Hub Cycling on, Jazz. As British Columbians uh, head home on this very busy Monday, uh, it would have been a little harder for them this uh, morning to get information. The BC Ferries website, app, and phone system uh, were down this morning. We are told as of 3 p.m. today, so just over an hour ago, the website and mobile app are up. Uh, Here's Deborah Marshall uh, speaking to us earlier today in regards to some of the challenges they were dealing with. Obviously, because we have an issue with the website, customers aren't able to make a booking. Having said that, most of the bookings have already been fully subscribed as it is Monday of the long weekend. 
So another busy weekend, another busy summer expected for BC Ferries. A Crown Corporation we like to complain about. We also like to uh, brag about as well. It is a, whatever uh, ferry route you're on, it is a fabulous uh, ride through amazing, amazing, uh, just pristine uh, scenery. And of course, anytime you have visitors coming, uh, visiting us in Vancouver, Victoria, we do try to recommend folks take the ferry and visit uh, uh, either side. And uh, it's one of the highlights for a lot of folks as well. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. He spent some time talking to the CEO of BC Ferries last week. Uh, it is a Crown Corporation, as, as I say, that uh, we like to complain about, but also we feel very much uh, is a part of uh, our culture here in British Columbia. Richard, thank you for joining us. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges Nick Hammond as the new CEO has, Jazz, is how important it is to people. And he is very much aware of that coming into this job. Yeah, I mean, we do take ownership of BC Ferries. It's, you know, it's easy to complain about government agencies, but when you talk about BC Ferries, and yes, we do complain about it, but we're proud of it as well. It's uh, from the distinction, distinctive horn to the sunshine breakfast, whatever it may be, everybody's got an opinion uh, on, on BC Ferries. So let's let's start with a broader snap uh, snapshot just for a second. Where is BC Ferries today? And I don't know how you want to describe the, uh, describe yeah. it to us, whether it be on the fiscal side, whether it be uh, a new board. Where does BC Ferries sit right now in regards to its fiscal health and as an organization broadly? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge facing the organization right now is a growing population in the province and a changing population in the province, largely due to the pandemic. We've seen more people move to BC and we've seen more people move around the province. And people are living in areas that at times may have been considered more remote. There are people who are living on the island who work in Vancouver, who are living in coastal communities, uh, and they are now going to be relying on the ferries when they need to go into the office because they're also allowed to work remotely for large periods of time. And this is fundamentally going to change the way that ferries offers its service. So uh, a changing world has led to changes at BC Ferries. Uh, in terms of the financial situation at ferries, it, it continues to be relatively healthy, but they needed, the only reason it's healthy is they needed a massive boost from the province. And, and with that surplus money that the David E.B. government had, they put it into ferries so that rates would not go up for people. Mm. Uh, so there are challenges ahead. And, and Nicholas Jimenez came to ferries from ICBC. The big reason why is because of Joy McPhail. Uh, she was the board chair at ICBC when ICBC moved to no-fault insurance. Nick Jimenez led ICBC through that change. McPhail then went on to become the board chair at BC Ferries. She's a bit of a problem solver for this government. They can rely on her. She's one of the few in the NDP stable in terms of you know former ministers uh, that they can count on to get jobs done. And so she did the job at ICBC to satisfaction, and now she's working on the new problem child, which is ferries, in a sense that we've seen these cancellations due to staffing shortages, mm-hmm. and we see this really challenging situation I described in terms of just the way that the service is delivered. And Nicholas Jimenez is the one the government hopes can, can solve those problems. So before we get into the service itself, the board, the way that it was set up under the BC Liberals, the ferries was supposed to operate at an arm's length from government, meaning it can make some controversial um, policy decisions in regards to where the ferry service needs to go, and there, would, there wouldn't be the usual meddling from elected officials, which has been part of the challenge with BC ferries for, for decades. And they ro- and under the Liberals, they did raise ticket prices 
prices for some of the more smaller routes. Where do you see uh, things headed now with, one would argue, under Ms. McPhail and a board some would argue or could argue that, look, these folks are going to be a bit more political and that that arm's length relationship that's been there for a while now perhaps is a lot closer between government and, and ferries. Yeah, these are, this is always a challenge. And ICBC was similar. Lotteries is at times similar. The reality is that these are arm's length from government, but the public ultimately perceives them as being government. And that is hard for politicians, because uh, if you're not going to um, influence decision-making but are going to be held accountable for it, you wonder, well, what if I were... Uh, to take a larger role here. So uh, I expect that we will see, um, you know, the board and Joy McPhail be shrewd around the political challenges here, but Nick Jimenez uh, will work at arm's length from government. But it's important. It's important as we tackle these challenges around staffing and around the way people move around the province, ensuring that service delivery is there that's reliable, that does not have cancellations, that does not have skyrocketing prices, that that is modern. All of that is important for people, and it should be important to politicians as well. So I I think there's distance there, sure, but I think that, you know, because the public perceives it as being a government service, uh, Joy McPhail's role is, is pretty um, apt in this situation. Uh, in regards to service, just for a second, we could talk about the roots uh, in a moment, but uh, I think it was on your story on on Friday's news hour, uh, the, the buffet is gone? <laughs> yeah, so they haven't announced it officially yet, but Nick Jimenez has done a handful of these interviews, and every interview it gets closer and closer to him, to him saying straight up the buffet's over. But what what he said to me, was they need to reimagine what that space looks like, that buffets in the modern era uh, post-COVID aren't working. The only places they see buffets having any success are all-inclusives uh, and uh, casino, uh, Las Vegas and um, on cruise ships. Anywhere else, buffets are basically a thing of the past. They waste a lot of food. And the staggering thing to me, Jazz, hmm. is he said that to run the buffet, it takes 80 staff just to run the buffets. And those are staff that could be used to ensure that the vessels run on time and that the other service is delivered. And those, for those who have enjoyed the buffet on the ferries, you know it's in the best place on the boat. And I think uh, they're looking at those vessels and saying we can do other things to provide uh, greater service. So they haven't announced what comes next, but it's very clear to me that the times at the buffet are over. The other two service things that were interesting to me in the interview I did with Dick Jimenez, one, they're thinking about expand, continually expanding this Pets on Board uh, pilot project. So yep. they've now expanded to some routes. My guess would be at some point, maybe or even as early as the summer, and that's just speculation on my point, it will be on the Swartz Bay to Tawasson Run, the main run between Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, this has been a successful pilot. It allows people to bring their pets up to the outdoor decks rather than stay down below. Uh, and the other one is on those dreaded car alarms. You know, this is one of those <laughs> oh, yeah. things. Anyone who's been on the ferry, you hear those alarms, and it drives the pets crazy. It drives anyone down there crazy. And so this year, for the first time, they will be handing out specific information. There are, We all know them. There's a handful of vehicles, F-150s, BMWs, Audis, that always go off on the ferry. They have manuals printed out for those car designs, and they will give them to the driver and say, your car is one that likely could have an alarm go off. 
here's some information on how to turn off your alarm. It would be very helpful if you did. I so t- that they're, you know, Nick Jimenez is tackling those real things that matter to people, Judge. <laughs> well, I could tell you, as a former MLA who used to take the ferry on a regular basis and sometimes would, would just stay in the vehicle to work, and those, I hated those BMWs so much because alarms would just be constant. You could, you, could set, you could set your alarm to it just every single time. So if they can at least deal with that issue, I think that would be um, uh, very helpful. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Uh, we were talking initially about BC Ferries' uh, challenges today as their website and app crashed. Uh, it appears to be up as of 3 o'clock uh, this afternoon. Keep it locked uh, to uh, CKNW for our news and, of course, our traffic to get the latest when it comes to BC Ferries. But uh, Richard and I were talking a little bit about the present and future for BC Ferries uh, in regards to how you modernize the system, especially under its new CEO, Nicholas Jimenez. Uh, Richard, um, one of the things you said in, in the first segment uh, was the fact that uh, you talked a little bit about a growing population. I recall going to Qualicum Beach uh, last year for vacation and uh, traveling through Nanaimo. And I hadn't been to Nanaimo in a couple of years, but I was just amazed at the, how much growth I saw uh, in that community. And there's many other communities as you head up island, the significant amount of people retiring to Vancouver Island, whether it's from BC or from Alberta and many other places, and just the natural growth that comes from it. I mean, uh, uh, when I look at, when I see that growth, I, I just sort of think, I'm not sure how you stay up as a ferry system without significant investment from government and building more vessels. And that's just a huge capital expenditure. Yeah, I asked Nick Jimenez directly about the new vessel question, and that's exactly what he said to me, what you just said. Those are hugely significant capital investments. They Mm -hmm. take long-term planning and are huge upfront costs. So the focus here is on more efficiency in terms of service delivery on current routes. But if we have pressure points like we've never seen before, uh, it is going to be challenging. That's why... Uh, there is a new renewed reliance upon technology. And, you know, it's unfortunate that things have gone down today. Uh, it just shows how important the ferries are for people. Uh, but uh, it's about relying on that long term. The app is a big part of that. And Jimenez also spoke to a more seamless um, service being provided, that when you arrive at the terminal, be it by vehicle or walk-on, um, there may no longer be kiosks you may be directed to a certain area through the app and then tap yourself in to get into that area. And they believe that that sort of service delivery could make things more efficient. Hmm. Uh, The more data BC Ferries has about the way that people are moving, when they're moving, how they're traveling, can allow them to better target. But the reality is the vessels have capacity. Uh, Once you get to that capacity, there's no more, and you lead to days like today where I was just looking at it and the website is back up and running. But if you're heading back from Vancouver Island to, to Vancouver today, uh, it is going to be a slog. If you don't have a reservation, there is a multiple sailing weight, uh, particularly in between Swartz Bay and Sawasan, and, and those pressure points are hard. But, you know, long weekends aside, Jimenez is focused in on the day-to-day service delivery and, and facing that challenge that you spoke to, which is more people are living on the island uh, more people are living in, in areas that are, you know, Sunshine Coast that, that need reliance upon ferries and figuring out how those people expect to move, not just for social activities, but to get to doctor's appointments, to visit family, to have access to services that they need. How can uh, 
BC Fair has used that information to better ensure that, that they get reliable, consistent services based on the fact that there's a global mariner staffing shortage. <laughs> and, 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 and that's something that BC can't solve, finding the right people to, occup- to, to work these boats, to operate the vessels, uh, to work for BC Ferries. All of that just compounds the problem. I, my understanding is they continue to work with um, a federal government to get internationally trained mariners to come into the country, and, and that can help offset uh, some of the big challenges. But so the hiring challenge with COVID, never mind just mariners, even casual staff, it still rem- rem- remains an issue. It does. Him uh, and promised to the commuters, the users of BC Ferries, that this will be a better summer than last, that we won't see the same types of cancellations we saw last year. But there's no guarantee it won't happen. So their their staffing issues are getting better. They are they are back up to staffing levels, but we're seeing ridership levels above pre-COVID levels. So they need to have staffing above that point too. And and the ferry the, the buffet comes into that. The reason the buffet likely will not continue is because of that idea that staff need to be used in other places. So yes, there are still challenges, but they've largely got a grip on the big staffing issues. Uh, This is a a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. It reminds me of whenever ferries used to get uh, in trouble during my reporting days, uh, we'd always have to call Pat McGeer, the former social credit cabinet minister, and he still had the model of a bridge from the Lower Mainland to Victoria or to Vancouver Island. And every time Ferries is in trouble, we'd always have to go and look at the model. <laughs> and I've often wondered what it would cost uh, for a bridge from the mainland uh, to Vancouver Island, number one. Then Never mind the challenges of actually uh, trying to build a bridge where you may have to hopscotch over some Gulf Islands, which you could imagine the protests and environmental questions being asked about that. But I've often wondered what a bridge to uh, Vancouver Island would cost today. It must be about 18 to $20 billion, I'm sure. So for those that are interested, buried in the BC Ferries website, which is now back online today, uh-huh. there is a report that was submitted to government, I think in 2008 or nine, mm-hmm. that had an assessment done on how much it would cost and what it would look like. And I think, again, this is based on memory. At the time, yeah. 15 years ago, the price tag was $8 billion okay. at bare bones. And a realization that there are points in that waterway that are far too deep to uh, put anything down. So it would have to be a floating apparatus. There are challenges with moving vessels through that corridor. Mm -hmm. And they could not figure out that. And then the idea that someone would get stuck, if their car broke down halfway between Victoria and Vancouver, how they could possibly get them, they were all challenges that were insurmountable. My thought always was, if there was any premier that was going to build a bridge between Vancouver Island and Vancouver, it was going to be John Horgan, and he was not at all interested. So (laughs) it's online. If you're interested in it, you can go read that report. The conversations have been had. The costs are astronomical, but, guys, it's far more complicated than costs. I I think about it a lot. I would love to be able to shoot over, you know, hour-long drive from here to Metro Vancouver, get to see the Canucks play, head back that night, you know, after 9 p.m., after the ferries are done, but I think my dream is never going to become a reality. Yeah, remember, remember that's the estimate. You know, when between estimates and reality, we see that with pipelines already. <laughs> they double easily, so or even the Site C. So that $8 billion could easily be $20 billion, uh, today, oh, that's for sure. Years ago. So I think 20, 30, 40 billion, you name the number, and, and, I, and I just don't even know if they have the real technology. It would be the largest span of its kind in the world, and I'm not sure it's an investment any government's going to make. No, absolutely not. Richard, thank you. 
but it's fun to dream. It's fun to dream. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. And I can always take a ferry over to visit you. So. There All you right, go. Thanks, You're welcome anytime. <laughs> All right, that is Richard Dustin, Global BC's legislative reporter. Let's talk about intimate partner violence, or IPV. It's described as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse or controlling behavior, which is inflicted uh, by an intimate partner. Now, approximately 80% of police-reported victims of IPV in Canada are women, and among the most common yet often underrecognized injuries sustained by victims of IP, IPV is traumatic brain injury, which can range from concussion to more severe structural injuries, uh, including hemorrhage or, or bleeding. Now, last week, uh, former Vancouver Connect Trevor Linden uh, partnered with the YWCA here in Metro Vancouver uh, to launch a rather chilling campaign to raise awareness about concussions from domestic abuse. Take a listen. I don't remember the hit. I remember everything leading up to it, but nothing after. He came from behind me. I didn't see it coming. I was hit in the side of the head. I remember being confused. My ears were ringing. It's hard to talk about. I still experience pain, mood swings. The headaches are debilitating. But this isn't my story. It's mine. As you can tell, uh, an incredibly um, amazing uh, PSA in regards to this issue because as uh, Mr. Linden there was narrating uh, his experience, you ex- expect him to obviously talk about uh, uh, what he went through as an NHL player. Then, of course, at the end, you heard a female's voice. Uh, it is a reminder of IPV that many of us haven't talked about IPV. Joining me now to talk a little bit about intimate partner violence is Dr. Cheryl Wellington. She's a professor and vice chair of research for the Department of Pathology and Laboratory medicine at UBC. Dr. Wellington, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. What did you think of uh, this PSA from Mr. Linden and uh, the YWCA here in Metro Vancouver, especially with a male voice helping to raise the profile uh, for this issue? The, the, the bit was an incredibly impactful uh, campaign launch. Uh, to hear the, the message from, from Trevor, um, as you said, we are expecting him to recount sport-related concussion. And by now, sport-related concussion is, is very commonly acknowledged. And there are so many resources in place to help with athletes recover, receive an appropriate diagnosis, and do the best that they can to get back into play. But turning that on its head and realizing the vastness of the, the uh, you know the, the number of women and families that are affected by intimate partner violence, it's an exceptionally important endeavor. And I just want to congratulate uh, Trevor and the YWCA for for this campaign. Uh, in regards to uh, IPV. Um, what's the chance of these victims uh, in regards to developing mental health conditions having to deal with this uh, sustained violence? It's a really good question, uh, Jazz, and, and one of the one of the challenges we have is that there, you know, there's there's obviously stigma around coming forward with intimate partner violence concerns. A lot of the medical personnel uh, do not specifically ask for, um, you know, what, what the history might be, whether there are problems at home that could 
lead to uh, damage to the brain uh, after sustaining, you know, in many cases, repetitive concussions or or uh, choking episodes that are more correctly termed non-fatal strangulation. But we want to be able to get rid of that stigma uh, and really raise awareness that this is a problem that should be addressed uh, just as much as we tackle sport-related concussions in, in kids. Uh, and we're very, very fortunate here in British Columbia to have a team of people that have been absolutely instrumental in bringing this uh, this topic to the, the, the forefront of awareness and, and research. Um, and so these are Dr. Paul Van Donkler and uh, Karen Mason, who launched the survivors of, of supporting survivors of abuse uh, and through research, mm-hmm. the SOAR project. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just gaining incredible momentum, and they've done so much already to, to, to raise the awareness. So we are now in a position to, to do a lot more uh, to understand how to better uh, help survivors of intimate partner violence if they have concerns over their neurological function, uh, to uh, to get the help that they need, the support that they need, the diagnosis that they need that can really help them get on their way. So I have the same question, but on two issues here. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start a little bit about the care. It, it, when we talk about the, there's physical violence and then there's also the challenges of uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, is mm-hmm. our standard of care or care uh, coordinated uh, on the medical side to help these women? Overall, I, I think we're starting to to get there. We have some models in, in British Columbia, uh, primarily the Embrace Clinic, which runs out of Surrey Memorial Hospital, that is unique in Canada for being a dedicated clinic to serve survivors of interpersonal violence. So, um, and, and it's just remarkable what they have been able to do over the past 20 or so years. What we're trying to do now is really augment and expand uh, uh, what they're doing and uh, have other support for similar clinics to be able to care for for survivors within their communities, uh, with the you know with with their culturally sensitive context, mm-hmm. uh, and and these because these are so important uh, to be able to break past some of the barriers that may prevent survivors from coming forward um, and, you know, and, and getting the care that they need that, that are now almost routinely offered to uh, people that sustain a concussion from, from other causes. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that is the question was based on sort of the health and medical side. The other one is just the mm-hmm. system itself, which is, mm-hmm. I think, of temporary housing, uh, the criminal justice system. Um, mental health help. I mean, the, the system itself in regards to responding to these issues, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where would you like to see, where do you think we need to focus on to improve it? And because it's, it can be the, obviously a call to a police officer who arrives at the scene, but it's also everything else. Some of the things we've raised already, shelters and temporary housing and mm-hmm. being culturally sensitive. How are we in regards to coordinating those services? We're again, I think, making strides, and this is this is where uh, a lot of the the people in BC that that are working on this issue have really made a tremendous product progress. Uh, Karen and her colleagues have already created a specific um, uh, aspect of the concussion awareness training tool. It's called the CAD. 
that is now directed to women support workers. Um, and we're, we want to go further in building these modules for first responders, for police, for paramedics, uh, 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 child support workers, uh, so that they can receive the training that they might be dealing with uh, one or, you know, a uh, could be the first concussion, could be the 20th concussion mm-hmm. when they respond. Uh, and But the, the, the need is so great to have that awareness uh, filter through all of the women support uh, worker and child support worker um, uh, sectors so that we can make sure that we are not rushing uh, women who are able to make a decision and, and wish to exit the relationship, that we're not rushing them through the process and supporting them in making the decisions and recovering from a, you know, a, a brain injury if it has been sustained. There's uh, a lot of work to do. Yeah, there is. As I think you nailed it, uh, nailed it right on the head. There's a lot of work to do. Tell me what it was like 10 years ago or even 15 years ago to talk about this issue. I'm sure as, as academics, you talk about this, as profession, health professionals, you talk about this. But in regards to the broader cultural conversation, I'm going to assume there was very little to none at that point. Well, you, you ask a really good question. I mean, I didn't, I, I've only been involved in this, uh, in this area of, of research and, and care for the past, oh, maybe three to four years or so. Hmm. And I come from a background where I've worked uh, for a long time on on traumatic brain injury on concussion and as well it's the links of brain injury to dementia risk and alzheimer's uh, and other forms of neurodegenerative disease so my my background is in that area but when paul and karen began to speak about ipv and the potential for brain injury the nuances of how this cannot be addressed by simply transposing what we already do in the more, like more standard, typical TBI studies or in the way that we look after um, Alzheimer's disease patients. We need to really do this from the ground up where we are focusing on the needs of this specific population. And I have been humbled uh, as, a, you know, as a professor who's been in the business for quite a long time. I've been humbled by the nuances and the importance of tackling this problem and really honored to be part of the, you know, the larger team that is, that is getting ready to, to hopefully make a big difference for, for these survivors. Dr. Wellington, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to speak about this incredibly important issue. Let's talk a little bit about taxes. The oddest thing happened uh, late last week. Amazon, that multinational corporation, uh, volunteered how much in total direct taxes it uh, paid in Canada. It's the first time they've done that. It was just quietly announced. Turns out they spent $431 million in payroll and corporate taxes in 2021. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about Amazon and multinational corporations like Amazon uh, is then there's been a greater push by um, the G7 uh, uh, against these companies to come out and fairly distribute their corporate taxes around the world. Too often uh, they will pay taxes in just one country or or uh, park themselves uh, in countries where there is a very low tax rate even though they may do business uh, in other countries. So in many ways uh, I think it was 
a part of a broader conversation about, hey, we are paying our taxes here in Canada. Don't say we're not, even though we're a U.S. company and we have, uh, we're based in other parts of the world uh, as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Amazon volunteering, how much tax it pays in Canada is Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, the number last week that we heard that Amazon, uh, in regards to its total direct taxes that they pay the government of Canada, is around $431 million uh, in payroll and corporate taxes. Did that number surprise you? Um, not really. I mean, you know, I knew that they did some pretty decent business here. And um, I think the thing that surprised me is, is less the number and more the fact that they sort of dispelled the, the myth that people like Amazon don't pay taxes. So I think a lot of people were kind of assuming that big multinationals don't pay tax. And uh, I guess what they're trying to do is they're probably showing that they actually do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that they could be paying more? And what I mean by that is because it's such a complex global company that uh, there is still a perception that they could be paying more, in some cases not paying enough in, in, a, in one jurisdiction, in other cases perhaps paying uh, more because that's where their you know, corporate head office may be in the case of the U.S. Well, Amazon has a bit of a different business model too than a traditional retailer because a fairly large chunk of their business is their third-party marketplace mm-hmm. where they allow uh, companies, Canadian companies, to sell their products on their marketplace. So when I read somewhere that if you add in that tax, it goes up to like $2 billion. When you When you roll up the tax that their third-party manufacturers or third-party sellers pay on their marketplace. So that may explain some of the differences, right? We're at places like Canadian Tire, Walmart, you know, they don't have large third-party marketplaces, right? They mm-hmm. sell everything through their direct channels. So that could explain it. But, I mean, yeah, certainly certainly everyone sort of thinks multinationals don't pay a lot of tax. But, you know, in this case, it looks like at least this one does. Uh, there has been talk in the past, especially among G7 nations, to uh, to close what they believe is lar- or large loopholes uh, because of the fact that a company like Amazon, obviously based in the United States, but would have a significant presence in countries like Ireland, which works for them, is beneficial on the tax side, that there needs to be a greater uh, focus on these multinationals from the G7 and potentially even the G20 to deal with these profits right. and that they pay their fair share. Uh, do you right. see that building momentum? I do. I think it's good news. I think it's here to stay. I think there's too many governments who had to pay a lot of money during the pandemic, and now they're trying to, you know, get as much tax as they can. And that might be related to sort of what Amazon's doing. I'm just guessing, but they probably read the tea leaves and say, you know what, this isn't going away. Um, You know, the G7, G20, they're going to make sure that everyone pays their fair share of taxes in the countries they do business, not just in their home headquarter country or in tax juris- tax uh, jurisdictions like you mentioned. So I think this might be part of it. They might be saying, you know what, hey, we get it, we understand, we don't want to be on the bad side of this uh, momentum, but to your point, and I think, you know, we have to we have to start showing, and that's why I think they volunteered this tax, because no, no one is making them uh, show how much tax they're paying. Mm-hmm. This is them going out saying, you know what, we, here, here's how much we pay. So it, it probably has a lot to do with them trying to get more transparency. And, and I guess one could argue that, look, this is where retail is headed. Yes, there's going to be a physical presence for bricks and mortar stores. People still want to be out shopping. But the reality is, the you know, ordering something online is incredibly convenient, having delivered to your door. And if that means 
it's Amazon or perhaps other uh, online uh, services, which there's plenty of those as well. But this is the reality, the new reality of retail. Yeah, this is the new reality of retail. And I mean, it kind of accelerated during the pandemic, you know, online sales double, but it's just, it shapes more of society. People are busier now. People have less downtime, right? They're working two jobs and doing all kinds of other things. So online shopping makes a lot of sense, right? And the consumers will always vote with their money, with their wallet, right? And that's what they've done. They've dictated, you know, hey, in Canada, this is how we want to shop. And Amazon has responded and others like Wayfair and you know, other e-commerce players have done the same. Mm-hmm. I was just re- recently reading about a, a, a U.S. site, I think it's Timu, T-E-M-U, which has just taken mm. off in a significant way, even here in Canada as well. Uh, and uh, it's not just Amazon. But I'm curious, in your mind, is there anybody that could ever catch up with Amazon because they've gotten so big, so fast, so quickly, uh, that uh, they gobble up any sort of competition in, in any sort of meaningful way that tries to compete. It, would we ever see a real competitor to Amazon in your mind? Well, I think they have some com- competition. I mean, certainly they had a massive head start, right, in terms of, you know, really starting the company a decade or two before everyone realized this is a thing. Um, but you have seen some catch-up. You know, you've seen Walmart launch their own e-commerce program. Canadian Tire has successfully launched a big e-commerce program. So, you know, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, there's gonna, there, there already is and there's going to continue to be a lot of different players in the e-commerce area because the barriers to entry are quite low too, which is kind of good for small companies, right? You don't need to lease a store. You can open up a website on Shopify and next thing you know, you're in business, right? So I think there already is a lot of competition, and but Amazon certainly had a head start. Mm-hmm. Uh, you raised a very good issue earlier uh, that governments are looking for new sources of, of revenue post-COVID. And I guess companies like Amazon with a market value of $1.6 trillion, I think that was um, in 2020, uh, right. this is inevitable. It's not just them. It could be the Facebooks. It could be many others. But government at this point, because of the large deficits that we're running, including here in Canada, they are just looking for new revenue. And com- companies like this are the ones they're going to be looking at. Definitely. I mean, they're going to be looking around at all the big companies, right? Because that's where the big dollars are. So, you know, if a company doesn't disclose, you know, its tax or isn't paying taxes like Amazon, there's going to be some major questions raised, right? So, you know, and I think that's what they're probably doing. They're probably saying, okay, before this all comes in a tidal wave, we're going to get out in front of it maybe and, you know, be transparent because one way or another, the government's going to get its taxes, whether it's now or later through regulation, right? So, uh, you know, it's probably a wise move on their part. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.